Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number three, um, which is uh, we've already done, of course, mathematically, show one and show two. The last time that we met, we were talking about the information that was contained in Chapter 1, which was dealing with legal descriptions. And what my plans are tonight is to, and if you look at your course outline, you're going to say, oh, oh he's running a little bit behind schedule. And there, that's always any time we try to do a course, what we're doing is we're trying to catch up in the beginning, mainly because of the fact that when I put the schedule together, the intention is, is that I'm going to cover all of that, what's in the chapter that night. But then we have the course orientations, and I'm going back over materials and trying to bring everybody up to speed. So we're kind of catching up, and it's always the same way in any kind of a class. But what we want to do is we want to finish off the rest of this chapter tonight. I'm going to kind of maybe step back for a minute, talk a little bit about what we discussed, and then go forward. I really do want to emphasize to you uh, that all of what I'm talking about now is on the uh, Blackboard website. The second thing that I think I mentioned in uh, a couple other classes is that the uh, videos are now also on the distance education website for the college. So that means that all you basically have to know is be able to get to Sacramento City College and go to the distance ed page, web page, and the, and the videos are there. And just as an example, I did this, and you may or may not believe this, but before class start, started tonight, I had to remember what was I talking about the last time or where did I leave off. So I actually went to the website, looked at the video, scrubbed it forward, and looked right near the end and said, oh, that's what I was talking about. So those are very, very helpful to help you keep up to speed. And what's really nice is you can watch them anytime, again, on Blackboard. Same, you're actually seeing the same video coming from the same place. It's just how you get there is different, okay? So you could, you could actually go to the Distance Ed page and, and watch them from there. So anyway, what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to talk a little bit more. We did discuss the last time we talked about several different types of legal descriptions. The fact that what I wanted to emphasize was the fact that most of you are very, very familiar with the concept of a common address that essentially means and they use that term in the book that means when somebody says 123 Main Street or 2795 Wentworth Road or uh, 123 Hill Street or something like that we're talking about a postal address that can change we're not describing how big the property is how deep it is what angle it sets on we're not doing any of that nothing so what we need to do is be able to say legally what is it that I own and what is it that I don't own the last time we talked about something called the meets and bounds description, which was in your book, what we were re essentially referencing there is like giving somebody a set of directions that said if you follow these directions from a starting point, you will be able to walk completely around my property and know exactly what the boundaries of the property are. I also emphasize the fact that those legal descriptions are usually old. The book does too, all, also does that. Some of them were done maybe in the 1700s or early 1900s. Some of the, the monuments of the things that they reference could be like an old tree that, by the way, fell down. Somebody cut up and used the firewood. It could be a, a stone wall that fell down. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of those walls over years fall down, because mainly not because somebody leaned against it, but because some water got underneath there and washed all the the dirt out underneath the rock and the whole wall falls down, so that monument's gone. Or if you even have a metal pin in the ground and it's made out of iron, which is susceptible to rust, it could have actually corroded and went away. So the thing is, is that any time that you as a real estate agent are running into those kinds of descriptions, especially in the outlying area where you see them, you may very well say to your client before you sell the property, is this accurate? When was the last time you had it surveyed? 
you know, because what you don't want to do is sell a property to somebody and find out your boundaries in the wrong place, that they really don't have 100 feet. They only have 95 feet, and the fence is on the wrong property. Okay, the second one we talked about was the government survey. And I'm going to kind of move over here a little bit to my uh, old friendly plasma screen here in my document camera. And what I want to do is just kind of reference that for you. Remember, if you'll remember, there are three in California. There are what we call, uh, and this kind of a system is where the analogy I tried to draw was the fact that if you were called by, say, the President of the United States and said, listen, could you come up with a system that would help me identify where property is located? One of the systems that you could do that would be uniform is coming up with a grid system. We use a grid system for streets, for example, in downtown Sacramento. We say to somebody, listen, meet us on the corner of 4th and L near Macy's, okay, or 10th and Q near the doctor's office, okay. We are familiar with having something going this way and something going this way, and if we give those two coordinates, we'll know where they're talking about and we know where to meet them. The same <clears throat> concept here is in the government survey. If you took a look at it, it's like laying a great big grid over the United States, if you will. Uh, essentially, in order to do that, we need to have some monument points, which is what we're going to talk about in a second, where we're going to actually go out, have somebody actually figure out exactly where on the earth this is located and drive a pin in the ground, and then everybody's going to take their reference off of that point. And one of the places that I mentioned that we happen to have that's fairly close by that you could always go visit if you wanted to is Mount Diablo. Mount Diablo, if you're going towards the San Francisco area, is basically you go down Highway 80, you get off on 680 and continue down on 680 towards 580, and when you get to Pleasanton, you'll start seeing signs that say Mount Diablo. On a clear day where the rains run through, you look down towards San Francisco, you may see a big mountain down there. That's Mount Diablo. Very nice place to go to if you want to look at the ocean on a really clear day. It's also very windy up there sometimes. But when you go up there, there's a monument. That's the place that we take the measurements from. Okay, And then there's one up north, which is also Humboldt ba uh, Baseline of Meridian, and one down south, which is the San Bernardino Baseline of Meridian. Okay, So that's what this map, if you will, is showing those points in northern California, central California, and southern California. Okay, a place to measure from. And what we do is when we're trying to locate property, we talk about, for example, if it's Mount Diablo, we're talking about property that may be located north of the baseline or south of the baseline or east of the baseline or the meridian line or west of the meridian line. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. Each one of... Uh, now, when we're locating those properties, this measurement system... Again, they're using the San Bernardino baseline and meridian. This is the San Bernardino baseline. This is the meridian here. And what they did is that the analogy I sort of like to look, look at is this is a lot of property. And you have to have some way of breaking this property up into smaller properties. I may want to do it because I don't want to get out there and mow, you know, 640 acres on a weekend. I want to buy something smaller. So I have to have some way of breaking it up, okay, some way of legally describing it. So what they do is in your book, they give you a figure here. They say they're going to show you this blown up later on, figure 1-7. But if I wanted to locate or I wanted to be able to describe where that is, I would talk about that this property was located on Tier 4 North. Notice that every time we go up, it's like having a shelf, like a series of shelves. And saying, okay, instead of saying Shelf 1, Shelf 2, Shelf 3, we say Tier 1, Tier 1, 2, Tier 3, Tier 4. 
In a warehousing system, they use the term tiers to store stuff. They may not call it floor. They may call it a tier. And so what's happening is this property, this, 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 town, this property that's up here, is actually located on Tier 4 North, and it's on Range 3 East. So if I was to de legally describe that part of it, I would say that parcel as shown on Tier 4 North, Range 3 East, of the Mount Diablo Baseline and Meridian. Okay? So I go from small to large. It's almost like when I'm talking about my home address. I don't say, you know, I live on the earth, okay, in the United States, in Sacramento. I say I live at 123 Main Street, Sacramento, California, in the United States, which happens to be located on the earth, in case I run into any Martians, okay? So it's from small to big. Now, this diagram here, this figure 1-7 right here, in a minute, when we turn the page, that's what's going to get blown up. So remember that. We're going to blow that up. We're going to show how big that is. That's, that's a fairly large piece of land right now. That happens to be that figure 1-7 is 6 miles by 6 miles, or 36 square miles. So it's fairly large. It's called a township. So that's a township. So that's a township. That's a township. That's a township. That's where we get the term. Okay. When we blow that up, we actually get a grid system that looks like this. That happens to be the figure that was blown up. Keep in mind that if you, if you count it across here, you'd go, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. So you'll notice that there's six of those things. If I go down, it's one, two, three, four, five, six. So I could say it's six by six. If I do six by six, it's 36. Now, each one of these squares is equal to one mile square. Okay, one mile square. Notice also the numbering pattern goes from right to left like a snake. It snakes down. So this is, this is section one, two, three, four, five, six. And then instead of going back, it goes down. Seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. So it's going like this. Okay, that's the way we describe it. So this happens to be section one. So if I was going to describe that property in relation to the other one, I would say this happens to be section one, okay, of the township, whatever the township is, that is tier four north, range three east of the San Bernardino baseline of Meridian. That's how I would describe that, okay? Each one of these is one mile square, and each one of the one mile squares is a total of 640 acres, Okay. Want to know how I know that? I don't know. You just work with it. You know what I mean? You just work with it. Oh, by the way, it happens to be in the book here. My goodness. My goodness. One of the students down here actually pointed out that one section equals 640 acres. So that's pretty, mir that's pretty much a miracle. Now, I may very well want to blow one of these sections up. And I'm not joking because I don't want to mow the grass. I want to buy something smaller. So when I divide that up, I take one of those sections, and this is what you see, okay? This, again, is one section. This is one mile this way and one mile this way. It's a total of 640 acres. The way we describe this now is we talk about, and you'll hear about this sometimes, you know, if, if you've ever been around ranch land or farm land, they'll talk about the North 40, the, the North 80, you know, they'll say the horses are out on the North 40. That's what they're talking about, okay? 
Keep in mind there's a couple reference points here that you want to be aware of. Number one, notice that they are always, anytime they give you a map, they need to tell you where north is. So this is pointing towards north. Very, very important. A couple things I want you to step back and look at the forest from the trees and observe. Notice that this is quartered out. It's in fourths. So this is the quarter. Even so, this is broken down again in a half. This is a quarter, this is a quarter, and this is a quarter. Okay, this is the northwest quarter, this is the southwest quarter, this is the, the northeast quarter, and this is the southeast quarter. Okay, if I'm going to describe this piece of land, I would say this is the northwest quarter of whatever section this happens to be, like section one, tier four north, range three east of the San Bernardino baseline of meridian. Okay, if I'm going to describe this piece of property here legally, and I'm going to talk about the one that's over here to the half, I would say this happens to be the east half of the southwest quarter okay, of section 1, tier 4 north, range 3 east of the San Bernardino baseline of meridian. And it gets smaller and smaller and smaller as you go. Okay? Where you need to know about this is, for example, you may very well have an exam on a real estate exam, and some people will say, well, you'd never see this question. Well, maybe they didn't have it on your test. But they may very well give you a legal description and say, by the way, acreage is selling for $500 an acre. Here's a legal description. How much would you sell the land for? So you have to know, be able to trace that back and figure out how many acres it is because based on the legal description, the math is simple. And then come back, and it will give you different prices, and you'll pick whichever one it is based on the legal description. But very, very important. You see this in large chunks of land. Large pieces of land is where you see this kind of a description. The last one, which is something you're going to see probably in most cases, and um, in, uh, if you're in a living in especially this, this example here is if you're living in a, like in a subdivision, a single family, uh, if you visualize a subdivision of houses, on a street, everything is fairly uniform. The way that that got that way, the way that those houses were built typically, is, is that some developer or developer slash builder purchased the land and then hired a civil engineer, okay, a licensed civil engineer, who happens to specialize in this. I mean, it's not like the civil engineer is somebody that does designs boats one day and airplanes the next and does land development the next. These are people that are extremely knowledgeable, understand how the system works, work with this on a daily basis. And you've bought the land or you're, you've optioned the land. And what's essentially happened is you hire this civil engineer who has this experience. You sit down with them over a cup of coffee and you say to them, excuse me, I want to cut this land up to build houses. Could you Help me out here. I'd like to have you figure out what you think is the best way based on your vast amount of knowledge and experience. And what they'll do is they'll take your request, go out, look at the property. The property may be in a meets and bounds description, which you own. It may be in a government survey. They'll go out. They'll survey the land. They will figure out where to put the lots, the streets, the curbs, the gutters, the sewers, the easements, where all that's going to go. They'll come back, they'll draw a map, and they'll sit down with you, and maybe you'll have a conversation with them back and forth and say, well, you know, could you make the lot a little bit bigger? Could you do this? Could you do that? You'll come to some kind of an agreement, and then what happens is that map is then goes forward to the government, which is either the county of the properties located in the county or the city, planning department typically, with a big stack of packet, uh, paperwork to go with it. 
Their planning department takes a look at it, makes sure that the engineer has done everything that's necessary according to the rules, regulations, laws, guidelines that they've established. Hopefully there's not too many problems. Then what happens is if, the, if it's approved, then what happens is then there's an authorization given to go ahead and record the map. When the map is recorded, now we have a legal description for each one of the lots. Now we can specifically call out an individual lot and say you own lot one, lot two, lot three, lot four. And the engineer has done things when he's created a lot, which these maps don't show, is put the dimensions of the lot, the length, the width, the angles, has put everything on it, okay? And an example of that kind of a map is this one here, which is shown, uh, if you will, in your book. And this is what you may see when you went home. And they're talking about this is going to be lot. This is where you've gone down, and this is going to be, and I'll try to get this in focus here. We're going to talk about lot 22. Now, this is a simplified map, by the way. If you look at the actual subdivision map that the engineer has created, that's going to be dimensioned. It's going to have length and width because that lot, the, the, mat, the lot may not be square. It may be wider in the front or thinner in the back or whatever. Uh, there, there's going to be a lot of other information in there because he's trying to show where the streets are going to be. He's laying everything out. So he's having to account for things like where the streets going to end, where there's setbacks, you know, in other words, are there going to be setbacks where, you know, from, from existing fence lines? Are there going to be property that's going to be dedicated for a park, you know, or for a school district or a fire department or whatever? So he's a, he or she is accounting for all that. But when you actually describe that property, you know, in a grant deeds, you know, when you get ready to convey the property to somebody, you're going to call this Lot 22. And it's going to be lot 22 of block 21. Now, you notice there's a block here that's numbered 21. You'll also notice up here there's another block as 20. Okay? And you'll notice they both have two lots, but part of the description is that we are distinguishing between which lot and which block we're in. And then finally, what we need to do is, and this is the final description down here, and this is telling us, and I'm going to kind of blow this up a little bit so you can hopefully see it, we're talking about, and this will be in your grant deed. It would also be on your deed of trust for the loan that you got. Lot 22 and Block 21 of the Short Line Beach Subdivision Number 2, which means that's the name of the subdivision. And I could have named that subdivision myself. I could have named that after my granddaughter. I could have called it the Sydney Subdivision, Unit Number 2. Uh, if it says Number 2, probably there's a Number 1 that's been created. Okay, Subdivision Number 2, as per a map, recorded in Book 4, page 42 of maps in the County Recorder of Los Angeles. Essentially what that means is that once that engineer has taken that map in, has gotten it approved, and it has then finally to make it a legal document that we now can write other documents against, we have to take it to the County Recorder's office and record it, which is like telling the world that now that land, which has the cows on it, mirandering around, is now going to be cut up into lots, okay? That's what we're talking about. That's a lot block description, all right? So anyway, those are the three, and you can see from that I would be able to, if, in fact, if you buy property, probably part of the process, not probably, but you'll get a copy of the title report. The title report will show the lot. It will show the dimensions. It'll talk about where the easements are. It'll talk about the fact of whether you have an easement for uh, you know, in other words, whether the phone company has uh, a box on your property that they're allowing them to come in and work on it, whether you have a transformer there, 
you know, whether you, you know, all those easements rights of way are all going to be recorded there. Okay. So this pretty much finishes off this chapter. A couple things I want to point out to you as a reference is that you need to know um, you need to know these things. And the only way I can really use this as an analogy, and we're all coming from different fields or different disciplines of things that we understand, or we have hobbies, and we know that there are lingo that we just happen to know. You know, if it's baseball or it's football or it's flying airplanes or carpentry work or whatever, we all have our things that we know. In real estate, there's certain measurements that you need to know so you have some frame of reference and can talk about it and calculate things. And this will talk about, for example, one acre is 43,560 square feet. That's good because you happen to know how many square feet are in an acre. So when I talk about the fact that I'm going to sell a house and it's on a quarter of an acre or a half an acre or three quarters of an acre, I have a reference point of how big that happens to be. You're also going to need to know how big a square acre is, which means length, length times width, how long a mile is. mile is 5,280 feet. That's linear mile. That's in distance. And then, of course, it goes down here. You know, what is a square mile? What is a section? How big is a township? So on and so forth. Okay? One more thing I want to mention to you is that occasionally in legal descriptions, you'll see other terms. Instead of using inches and feet and yards, they'll use something called rods and chains. Here's the way that I like to explain how that works. There are a lot of things that we do in life in which we come up with different ways to measure stuff. If you're in the military, for example, you'll talk about, you know, the troops are so many clicks away, okay? In fact, when people do that, I have to, you know, we all have to reference back to what is a click, how, big, how long is a click, okay, kilometer in other words. Um, we're going to find out uh, if we're talking about boats, we'll talk about fathoms, you know, how big is a fathom, how long. If we're talking about horses, we may have a measurement called hands. In other words, we'll always have all these different things that whoever's in the field has come up with these measurements. In real estate, we have different things where the surveyors may use them. For example, they may talk about a rod or a chain. What it is is it's something of a fixed length, something that, you know, you can lay end to end and come up with a measurement. Okay, so hopefully that makes sense. I could come up with, I could come up with a device called a pen, and I can lay it end-to-end -end down your property, and I can say Pat Hogarty came up with the pen measurement, and your property happens to be 200 pens by 400 pens. In other words, that just happens to be the way I measure or increment it, okay? So these, and if you go back and you look in a lot of the dictionaries, like Webster's Dictionary or something, you're going to find that there are a lot of different types of measurement devices that have happened over the years, okay, just so you're aware of it. Um, they also go down here and they talk about finding dimensions of an acre, okay? Uh, usually, again, in acreages, uh, you as a real estate agent are told that it's, that it's a certain size. Quarter of an acre, half an acre, three quarters of an acre, ten acres, twenty acres, or whatever, okay? Okay, so that takes care, if you will, of that particular chapter. What I want to do now is I want to move into the second chapter, which happens to deal with, if I can find it now, estates, estates, transfers, and titles. Estates, transfers, and titles. Now, let me just see if I can do this one at a time. Estates means what is it that you own, okay? 
In other words, what kind of ownership do you have in the property? Is it a fee simple estate? That means that you are fee simple absolute. That means that you own the property. You have the right to sell it. You have the right to give it away. You have the right to leave it to somebody in the event that you die. You have total control over that property. Okay? Conversely, we have estates that we'll be talking about called life estates. Life estates happen to be an estate that you happen to own, live in, and can enjoy as long as you happen to be alive or some other individual happens to be alive. But at their death, it goes either back to who it came from or it goes to somebody else. Okay, so it has a limited time. Okay. We also have estates that are called leasehold estates or less than you know, fee ownership. In other words, I go in, I lease the property from somebody, I, ha I can live on it for 10, 15, 20 years like we do with the retail business. You know, Home Depot may le lease their building for five years or 10 years or 15 years. State of California may lease. At the end of that lease, they either renegotiate it or they move out, one or the other. So that's what we're going to talk about. Now, I want you to notice here, as we talk about this, they're going to take this diagram here, and what's going to happen is they're going to take this, and the next diagram I show you is going to be talking about this side over here, okay, on the next page. We're going to talk about that for a while, and then actually a few pages later we're going to talk about less than freehold, which is going to be like uh, leased property, okay, like rental, leased property, okay. So I want you to see that this happens to be with freehold, real property. This happens to be less than freehold or personal property. Okay, so I'm going to flip the page, I think. No, I'm going to turn, I'm going to get the other page. And the first one we're going to talk about is the one that is freehold estates. That's this one, freehold. Okay, Okay. and then they're further going to break them down this way. And so let me walk through this diagram. This is important that I do this so that you know. Okay, and you may say, why? do you want to bother me with this besides being on some silly exam or something like that? The reason why is because there are restrictions on that property. If you go out and somebody has a life estate, there's certain things they can and can't do with it. So you need to know that these exist and at least know who to call when you're dealing with it. Okay, so I'm going to move over here to the estates and fee. Estates and fee means that you own the property, can do whatever you want with it, okay, um, or an estate inheritance. You further break that down to a fee simple absolute and a qualified defeasible with conditions and limitations. Okay, so let me see if I can explain this. A fee simple or a fee simple absolute property is means that you have purchased the property or somebody died and left you the property or somebody gave you the property and there are absolutely no strings attached to the property at all. None. You can, you can get the property, you can decide that you want to sell it, you can decide that you want to rent it out, you can decide that you want to get a mortgage against it, you can do whatever you want with that property. You have total ownership of that property. There are no strings attached to it, period. This is the most common type of ownership we would have when you buy property. If you buy a piece of property, you are normally getting that property, period. You can do whatever you want with it based on that and what the law will allow you to do or any other restrictions, but that's your property. Okay. The second type is something where you have what we call qualified defeasible conditions and limitations. <clears throat> what this means is that I am going to turn around and maybe sell 
a property to somebody or give a property to somebody, but I am going to continue to attach some strings to it. I'm going to continue to have some control over it. Let me give you an example. If I own a piece of property and I decide that I want to give the property to Sacramento City College, I want to give it to them. Okay, Maybe I want to give it to them while I'm alive or I want to give it to them after I die. I can say to them, and a lot of people do this, I can say to them, I'm going to give you the property, but the only thing that you can do with that property when I give it to you is to build a college on it called the Pat Hogarty Real Estate School. You know, this is like 50 acres, you know, big thing. And that's all you can use it for. You can't use it to build condos on. You can't build it to use townhouses. You can't put a shopping center. You can only use it to put this college up there, and it has to have Pat Hogarty's uh, you know, real estate college, okay, period, end of discussion. If you don't do that, then I want it back, okay? Now, what can happen is those limitations that I can have is I can do it either beforehand or after. For example, I can turn around and say, I will not give you that property or I will not sell you that property until you agree to those conditions, okay? If you agree to them, I'll transfer it to you. If you don't agree to it, you're not going to get it, Okay? Now, if it happens to be a gift, you know, that might be where the people that are receiving the gift maybe are going to say, well, now we've got to raise money, we've got to build this school for Pat Hogarty, blah, 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 okay? But anyway, I, in other words, I don't transfer until they agree. The other kind is where I can go ahead and transfer it to them, but I say to them, by the way, you have a period of time. You know, when I give you this property, you have 10 years from the date that I give it to you that you have to build this school. If you don't build that school, then I want that property back. If I'm alive, give it back to me. If I'm dead, give it to my estate. And, if, and what I'll do is I'm going to go ahead and give it to somebody else. Okay? That's the conditions that I uh, arrange to it. For example, I could also sell property and have a limitation on it and say, listen, when I sell that property, there is going to be no alcoholic beverages served on that property. It's too close to the school, to the church, whatever. So I, and if you do that, I want it back. So I can attach limitations to it. Okay? You, as an agent, need to be aware of that when you're selling a piece of property. You know, you know, what, you know, what are there any limitations, any restrictions, or whatever? Okay. Conversely, I can also have something called a life estate. Now you may say, well, what do we mean by a life estate, and how would we end up with one? An example I usually like to use is this. Um, somebody may have. We all have parents you know, that are getting older. And it's not uncommon, I'm not saying it's common, but it's not uncommon to maybe have the children or one of the children move in with the parent and take care of the parent because the parent is infirmed. Maybe they have Alzheimer's disease. Maybe they have some other kind of disease that they need somebody to take care of them. So the, either the son or the daughter moves in with the grandparent. And the grandparent says, you know, you've done such a great job taking care of me. What I want to make sure is that I take care of you. So what I'm going to do is this. My house is free and clear right now. If I die, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make sure that you're going to be able to live in the house forever and ever. I'm going to give you a life estate, which means that as long as that, that person is, that son or daughter, or whoever moved in and took care of them, whatever the agreement, as long as they live there, that they can live in it and enjoy and rent it out and do whatever they want with that property. But then when they die, 
when that person dies because it only exists for the time of their life, that property then can either revert back to where it came from, which means in reversion, or it can go to somebody else. So as an example, reversion can mean where, hey, on the death of my daughter, I want the property to come back to my estate, okay, to my estate. And then, and then in my estate document, I may say some other things that's going to happen. On the other hand, I may say on my death of my daughter, I want the property donated or the property is going to go to the American Cancer Society, the American Heart Association, the Sisters of Mercy, whatever it happens to be. Okay, so it's going to pass to somebody else, okay? People do this because they usually want to have some degree of control over the property that they're leaving somebody. And, and sometimes you'll see this because they just do it because they think it's the best thing to do because it's going to take care of the kids. The problem with this is the fact that I've had people that have come to me and told me, I had one lady a few semesters ago, a student, where uh, if I remember the circumstances correctly, it was her mother that was taking care of the grandmother. And what was happening is the grandmother, I think, was either getting close to passing away or passed away, and the daughter was left with the house. The problem is, is the daughter didn't have enough money to continue to maintain the house. The house was starting to fall apart around them. Now, the way that this whole thing was worked out is that when the daughter died, the property was then going to be split up amongst the remaining kids, okay? But there was no money. In other words, the daughter didn't make enough money to fix the house up. And if you think about it, when you get ready to apply for a loan, you know, they look at two things. They look at the property, and they look at the person that's going to be paying the loan. Well, if all of a sudden when the person dies, the property goes to somebody else and the stream of income goes, who's going to lend on it? So it can be a very impractical, in some cases, way of leaving property to somebody. Well-intentioned, but not good. Sometimes people will do this because they also want to make sure that the property is not going to get passed to somebody they don't want to. For example, the daughter may be somebody that the mother really liked or loved. But she's married to somebody, this guy that, that, the, do that the mother thinks is a bum. The problem is, is if the property is left to the daughter and the daughter dies, okay, and she, the daughter leaves a will, she can pass the property to the son who happens to be somebody that the mother doesn't like, and that might be why she has a life estate. She wants to have continuous control over where that property goes. Again, people do these things. Sometimes they think through it. Sometimes they get the, uh, the consultation of an attorney. Sometimes the attorney advises them, and they still go forward with what, with what they do. But you need to be aware of that. If you see something as a life estate, you need to know that if you're going to list a property for sale, or make an offer on a property that that person owns that property, has the right to sign those documents, has the right to you know finance it, do whatever needs to be done on the property, okay? Okay, so that's the two, if we're talking about, you know, what we're talking about is ownership of real property, okay? The other kind is something that is less than freehold or personal property. Personal property. Now, in the case of personal property, which they give you a little diagram here, they call it, talk about it that it's less than freehold, okay, less than freehold. Typically, we're talking about property that has lease and rental agreements on it. <clears throat> Some of you may not be aware of this, but most large companies like, you know, like, you know, like a Home Depot, like a Lowe's, like, um, you know, Marshall's, you know, all those stores, retail stores, stuff like they don't own that site. What they do is they go to the person that owns the shopping center and they negotiate a lease. 
And that lease might be for three years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. They may have the right to renew the lease. Uh, when they lease the property, what happens is, is maybe the building is just a shell. There's a concrete floor, some walls with no sheetrock and no ceiling in it. And say Marshalls is going to move into that space. They're going to they're put in shelving and, you know, they've got flooring and everything, what we call leasehold improvements. Well, the, during the period of time that, say, Marshalls or Home Depot, whoever it is, occupies that building, they have a right. That's their property. In other words, the landlord can't do something like sell the building and cancel them out of the lease. You can't do that. They have the right. That's their property during that period of time. Okay, it's a personal thing, kind of a thing. It's not a, a, a it's not a, uh, you know, the real estate thing. It's it's a personal type property, but it's still the fact that it's their ownership of their property during that period of time. <clears throat> you see that there's leases on things like uh, doctors' offices, dentists' offices, legal offices. Um, Office buildings, shopping centers, retail establishments, coffee shops. If you really think about it, if you're going to open up a coffee donut shop, you're not going to go in and put in, you know, several hundred thousand dollars worth of leasehold improvements to have the landlord kick you out the next year. That's not going to happen. Okay, so, you know, leasehold uh, interest. Uh, typically, what you're used to is the fact that you're going to rent someplace on the residential side. You know, you rent an apartment, that's going to be, uh, what, on a month-to-month basis maybe. Every month. You know, the rental agreement may say you're going to rent, and as long as the landlord receives the rent from you by a certain date of that month, that rental agreement continues on, okay? Either one of you have the right to cancel that rental agreement. As long as you give 30 days notice, you can cancel. The landlord gives 30 days, they can cancel, okay? So, in other words, it's a month-to-month basis, okay? You can also have lease agreements that last a year or longer. People say, well, why would you want to have a lease agreement on a house? Well, it protects two people. On the landlord side, the landlord knows that they're going to get somebody in there that's financially qualified, that has passed all the tests that they have as far as capability of paying the rent, uh, so the screening and everything else. And they know that they're going to be there. They know they're guaranteed to be there or at least financially on the hook for whatever period of time, a year, two years, three years. Conversely, the tenant knows that when they move in that their rent is going to be stable for a year, two years, three years, or whatever, or whatever they've negotiated. And on top of that, that they know that the landlord can't call them up after they've been in there for a couple months and say, excuse me, I decided to sell a house, get out. You can't do that because you have a legal document that says that the lease is going to last. So typically, a lease is going to be some kind of an estate for years. Okay. Typically, a lease is associated with something that's going to be a year or longer. And we have all kinds of leases. I mean, ranchers and farmers, like farmers will lease uh, agricultural land to grow crops. Uh, you may go out there and find out that there's a farmer and he's talking about the acreage, the North 40, the South 40, or he's growing corn or wheat or, or tomatoes or something like that on the property. He may actually be leasing that property from the farmer next door. <laughs> he doesn't own it. He operates it, but he doesn't own it. He may be doing that with pasture land, grazing, things like that. Okay, uh, you may also find that people will actually have long-term leases and build the building on them. Like uh, sometimes in like national forests, some of the cabins you'll see like in a, in a, uh, that you'll, will be in a forest will be where the person that owns that that property owns the building sits on it, but they have a lease, a long-term lease from say the government for that. Okay, so anyway, um, just so you're aware of that. Uh, estate from year, uh, period to period means that, you know, it's for a specific period of time. Estate at will means that we're going to be able to keep the lease 
as long as the both of us continue to agree to lease. I continue to pay. You continue to agree to receive it. We can both terminate it at any time as long as we give the notice. Okay. The last one is going to be in a stated sufferance. And a stated sufferance means when the person has stayed in the property beyond the agreed-upon term. Now, it doesn't mean that they're a bum. It doesn't mean that they're terrible. It means that the term of whatever the agreement is has ended. And they've stayed beyond that. Now, if they've stayed beyond that and the tenant gives the landlord some money, you know, the monthly rent, and the landlord accepts that money, then they're going from a, a, a uh, what is it, like an estate at will or an estate at period to period. You're just going to continue to pay the payments, whereas you don't have an agreement that says you have a thing. But as long as the, the tenant pays and the landlord accepts, the rental agreement continues in existence. Where do you see that? At least my experience has been is when you rent property to people. They, you know, I've rented property, <coughs> you know, um, where the people are saying, I'm going to move to town, and within a year I'm going to have this house built. And you sit there and you listen to their story and you go, you don't want to tell them, you don't want to break the bubble, but it's obvious that they've never built a house before because they're sitting there telling you, oh, we're going to start, you know, in February, <clears throat> we're going to build this 3,000-square-foot house, and it's all going to be done in May. And you go, yeah, right, you know. I mean, yeah, right. They never heard of bad weather, you know, contracting problems, material shortage or whatever. And at the end of the year, or usually a little bit beforehand, they say to you, by the way, is it okay if I stay another few months? Okay. And so what they'll do a lot of times is that you may not reinitiate the agreement. You may just say, okay, well, send me the month's rent. The agreement is finished. The lease agreement is ended, but you continue to receive money. Okay. Um, of course, all of those things in here. Okay, the next thing <clears throat> we want to talk about is how do you go about getting property? How do you acquire it? words, how do you get real estate, okay? And there's essentially, as they show you here on this page, there's essentially, I think what they say, seven ways that you can do this, okay? Okay. The first way is by deed, okay? And they use the term grant deed. A grant deed, and I'll talk about that in a minute, a grant deed is just a document. Now, we are all familiar with owning a car. And we were all familiar with the fact that, at least in California, we use the term that we have the pink slip, which is the register. And that's, what it is is it's something that shows who owns the car. Okay? If we decide to sell the car, usually what we do is we have to turn the document over and endorse it and say we're selling it to somebody else. So that's how we transfer title when we sell the car from us to somebody else. Then somebody runs down to the Department of Motor Vehicles, runs in, uh, presents the thing, they present a bill of sale because it's personal property, you know, for whatever amount of money they paid. They pay their fees, and then the re registration is transferred from that person to the other person. That's how we transfer title. If you really think about it, another analogy, too, is that if you go down and you buy a brand-new car and you get a loan against it, that pink slip is not held by you. It's held by the lender. And then once you pay the loan off, the lender goes ahead, and then, you know, once you pay your last payment, they remit or send you back the pink slip. The reason why they have the pink slip is because that has given them the power to sell the car in the event that you do not make your payments, okay? They send the repo guy out, okay? But a grant deed is common when we're talking about transferring property from one person to the other. 
and that means by where we've sold it and we're going to transfer, we're going to give them, give them the property, whatever, it's how we transfer property, okay? That's a grant deed, okay? And I'm just going to show you what a grant deed looks like, which is on this page right here, okay? This is a very simple grant deed, okay? This is something, whenever you buy property, this is a document that is normally, normally, normally created in California, at least, by an escrow officer, okay? And then once it's created and you sign everything off and all your loan paperwork and all your documents and everything else, this document, on the day that you actually take possession, is taken down to the county recorder's office and recorded at the county recorder's office, okay? And essentially what you're doing is you're just telling the world that, you know, the property was sold to somebody else, a transfer, okay? Um, this document is fairly simple, up here, it just tells you when, after you've recorded it, where to mail it to. Okay. Over here, this happens to be the date, and I'm going to blow this up so you can see it now. This happens to be the date at which time the document was recorded. It was recorded on May 19, 1971, at 8 o'clock in the morning at the register recorder. What's important about this time is because any time that you're talking about who has priority and when things happen, it's whoever did something first. In fact, I was telling the class last night, when we talk about loans, we talk about having a first loan or a first mortgage and a second mortgage and a third mortgage. And everybody gets to the analogy that, oh, first mortgages are big mortgages and second mortgages are smaller mortgages. That's not true. You could have, for example, a first mortgage in the amount of $10,000 and a second mortgage in the amount of 100 and a third mortgage in the amount of 75000 The first, second, and third has to do with who recorded first, who recorded second, and who recorded third. And the reason why that's important is because whenever you, if you don't make payments and you foreclose on the property, if the property gets sold at a public auction, the way it gets the people that get their money back for the loans is that the first loan gets paid first, the second loan gets paid, second and third loan gets. So as you get further away from that first position, your risk goes up. Okay, that's what it is. Um, so anyway, this is when it was recorded. Okay, this little stamp right here is just showing you that you pay documentary transfer tax stamps on the transfer of the property. There's a documentary transfer tax stamp. It's 55 cents per $500 or a dollar ten per thousand. Okay, and it's different depending upon whether it's located in the county or the city. It's just a tax that's collected to make the city or the county money. Okay, not very much, but it is. Uh, next thing is, and I'm going to kind of blow this back out again, is that you have to have a granting clause, okay, on the grant deed. And what it says up here is it says, for valuable consideration, valuable consideration, by the way, can be anything of value. I could have decided to buy this house or this property, and I'm going to trade my boat for the property, my motorcycle for the property. I'm going to give you cash for the property. I'm going to give you a note for the property. In other words, for some kind of thing that's considered to be valuable, I'm acquiring the property. The reason why that's important is because in, in, in a legal framework, in order for you to have a contract, you have to have something called consideration. In other words, that's part of an element of a contract. I can promise somebody, you know, I can, we can have something, but I have to have something that I'm going to, some consideration. Okay, so that's valuable. It could also be for a promise. I could say I promise that, uh, you know, 
you know, maybe it's a small strip of land, and I promise that uh, um, I will mow my grass for now on it, and, and I'll deed this other piece of property to you. I mean, anything that's of value, okay, which could also be a promise. Anyway, so what it does is it says, Receipt is hereby acknowledged that Henry W. Splitter, that's his name, a widower. What's important about identifying that he happens to be a widow is the fact that we happen to live in, in California. We're in a community property state. What that means is that any property that's acquired after the date that you get married is considered to be community property regardless of how much each person works. So in other words, the wife can go out and make $300,000 a year and the husband can sit at home and play games and watch eat potato chips, but he still has 50-50 of everything. It's a community property state, okay? Anything after the date of marriage. The only exception to that is anything that you receive through gift, somebody gives you, or inheritance. Any property that you receive prior to your marriage is still your sole and separate property, okay? has to do with how you dissolve things, who gets what kind of a thing, okay? Anyway, so he's widowed. His wife died. Okay, so he's owning, this is his own interest. His acquired title as Henry W. Splitter does hereby grant to Philip S. Docker, who happens to be a single man. Okay, again, he's not married, so this is his community, this is his property. Okay? Uh, the real property in the city of Los Angeles, county of Los Angeles, state of California, described as this. This is the legal description. Lot 22, Block 21 of the short line subdivision unit number 2, as per the map recorded in Book 4, uh, page 42 of maps in the county recorder's office. That legally describes what that property is. Next, he is reserving, reserving onto the grantor, which happens to be the person, splitter, that's given this property. He's going to reserve 50% of all oil, minerals, coals, petroleum, gas, and kindred substances in and under the land, under the property, okay, from a depth of 500 feet. In other words, the first 500 feet splitter has, anything below 500 feet, I'm, I'm sorry, who is, who's the guy? The guy that's buying has everything for the first 500 feet. The guy that's selling is maintaining all those gas and substances below that surface. Okay? And it says for a depth of 500 feet from the surface of said land. So that person now is retaining things from below, from 500 feet, it's actually like 501 feet down all the way to the center of the earth. If they discover oil, that's his oil. Okay? 50% of it. Okay? The other 50% is going to remain with the other guy. Uh, and it says, from, from the surface of said land, but without the right of entry to the surface thereof. What that means is essentially that if you discover oil in the yard, you can't go and show up at somebody's door, knock on the door, and say, excuse me, this, I got this great big rig out here. We're going to drop it right down through the old pool in the backyard and drill for oil. No, you can't. What that means is that if there is oil discovered there, you may have to go in from another location, service location, and it's giving you the authorization to go in and drill underneath the property and extract whatever minerals, oils, gold, silver, whatever it happens to be. That's what it is, without having surface entry. And do they drill at an angle? Yes, they do. Okay, they do all kinds of drill. In fact, it's amazing to watch how they do this. In addition to that, this legal description says subject to. Subject to means, oh, by the way, let me tell you something. There are some things I need to tell you about the property, Okay. Okay, because I'm going to warrant that I own the property. I'm going to warrant that it's free and clear. I'm going to warrant a bunch of stuff, like giving the guy a warranty. But 
I want to tell you a couple things that you need to be aware of. Number one, that there are general and special taxes for fiscal year 1991 and 1992. Okay? Right? I'll talk about this in a minute. Number two, that there are something called covenants, conditions, and restrictions and easements and rights of way of record. Okay? And three, there's a trust deed uh, to file concurrently here with. Let's take the first one. The first one is just letting them know that this is real estate and it has property taxes. Okay? What's important about this, which this doesn't tell you, is that, and I don't want to kind of complicate this, but when you get ready to buy a piece of property, one of the things that you will normally do as part of the process is that you will be working with a title insurance company. A title insurance company is going to take it and look through all the records to see if you really do own that property, if the property taxes are up to date, if there are any easements on the property, like does PG&E have the right to run the power lines over the top of your property? Does uh, PG&E have a gas line in there that has to have access to have water pipes? You know, what's on the property? That transformer, that green box that's on the side of the driveway, I think it's a transformer, PG&E owns that or SMUD owns that, okay? So letting everybody know, that's called a... That's called a uh, that's a uh, what we call a title report or it's called a preliminary report. In fact, that's one of the things when you make an offer on a piece of property that once that's issued, you as a buyer have a period of time that you're supposed to read that, understand what it is, and sign off that you agree that you understand what it is, because that'll show like if there's liens, are there IRS liens against the property, are there any 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 uh, mechanics liens against the property any taxes owed, on and on and on, any conditions of the property. And you want to go down each one of those items and understand what it is that it is. It may be something that's totally insignificant, but you want to know. If you've bought this property with the idea in mind that you're going to put a pool in the backyard only to find out there's an easement going right across your backyard, you know, that's not obvious and that you're going to have to pay the utility company to move that easement and that's going to cost you $50,000, that might be something that would deter you from buying that specific piece of property. Okay. Second, it says that it has covenants, conditions, and restrictions. Typically today, we don't call them covenants, conditions, and we do. They are called covenants, conditions, and restrictions. Some people will refer to them as CC and R's, which is the first letter of each one of those words, C for covenants, C for conditions, and R for restrictions. But sometimes people will refer to them as homeowners association. Okay. Or we have a homeowners association. You know, in other words, like we have in a townhouse or a lot of the gated communities have these. Okay. In fact, I think almost all subdivisions have some form of covenants, conditions, and restrictions. What they are is they're private property restrictions. Private. Meaning the people that live in the community in that subdivision or in that townhouse or that condominium have these restrictions that are going beyond what the county or the city is going to enforce. Okay. For example, my son owned a condominium down here in a place called Woodside. It's down on Howe Avenue. They have covenants, conditions, and restrictions. One of the restrictions that they had is he could not park his pickup truck, which looked brand new, on the grounds. That's just a restriction they have. Now, you could have had where they had an old clunker park next to it, but you could not park a pickup. If you put drapes on your window, the backing that faced the outside had to be white in color. I mean, there were all these restrictions. Up where I live, we have restrictions. I live in a place called in El Dorado Hills called Serrano. 
we have, if I put my trash cans out on Sunday night for the guy to pick it up on Monday, that's fine. If Monday night, if I don't have the trash can in, the security guy comes by and writes a ticket up on me, okay? Uh, if I want to have my motor home on my property for an ex- you know, and bring it over to get it ready, I have 12 hours from the time I bring it there to the time it leaves, okay? I cannot have guests over and pa- or, or park cars in the street overnight. I'll get a ticket. And you may say, well, Mike, why would you ever want to live in a place like that? This is crazy. Why would you want to do that? Because you know what? You drive through the neighborhood and everything is uniform. You do not see, you know, like like I had when I bought my first property where I was wondering, you know, this guy had this Cadillac parked in on the on, in the driveway and then another one on the lawn. And I was 21 years old and I didn't know the difference. And after I moved in out for a while, I thought, you know, this is affecting my value of my property. I had no way of controlling what he did. You know, now we've gotten tighter now with the zoning ordinances in California and specifically in the Sacramento area. But you know, it, you know, when people, if I wanted to sell the house, people would come down and go, you know, my God, look at that, that looks terrible. Or you get somebody that just doesn't keep their house up and the, you know, the paint looks awful. Okay, you know, this is a way for us as private property owners to say, wait a minute, we all are in this together. You know, what you do has an effect on my property, and you are not going to do that. <laughs> okay. So usually we have the build, the developer puts these in place. He has those rights until he normally sells at least the 51st lot or 51% of the, because then he goes from being min, majority owner to minority, from majority to being minority, okay? Then what ends up happening is, is then the homeowners will take over. They'll form an association, put budgets together, do all that other stuff, put groups together like architectural review committees, all those things to enforce those covenants, conditions, and restrictions, okay? So we're telling the people that these exist. You as an agent need to tell them they exist, and if you're going to be a home buyer, you should be reading these things to see what the restrictions happen to be, okay? The last thing that's on there that I want to mention is that it says there's a trustee that's going to be filed concurrently. All that essentially means is the person that's buying the property is going to take and get a loan. They'll file the grant deed, and then they'll file a deed of trust afterwards to secure the loan against the property. Last thing down the bottom, because we're getting close to the end, this is the notary public seal down here. Uh, Any documents that you're going to record at the recorder's office need to have a notary seal on them. The reason why is because they want to make darn sure that whoever is doing this is really who they say they are. They want to make sure that somebody's got a fingerprint, a signature, and an ID to make Dargon sure that you're not going down there and recording a deed against somebody else's house or another document, okay? So it's a way to make sure that everything is notarized. Okay, that is a grant deed. And so the next time we pick up, we're going to pick up probably talking about the deed that's called the quick claim deed, okay? And a quick claim deed is different than the grant deed because a quick claim deed is really where you're not really granting somebody something. What you're essentially doing is saying, listen, if I have an interest in this, I give it up. That's a way to clear the title up. Okay? With that, I want to thank you very much for coming and study hard, download the study guide, and we'll see you back here uh, next time for show number four. Thank you very much.